Hello, sexy souls. This is your host, Erika, K as in kinky, and welcome to Project Black. Why black? Well, my hypothesis is that black is the kinky chakra. And speaking of kink, we are going to be talking about sexual authenticity with Galen, who happens to be a sex and kink positive therapist, author, educator, and sex researcher. His research is focusing on understanding and mapping the psychological dynamics of sexual desire, including kink, fetish, and BDSM-oriented sexuality. He has a master's in transpersonal psychology from the Institute of Transpersonal Psychology. And he also, here's a surprise, he's also created a versatile sex toy in 2009. And we will be talking about that in the show. And speaking of sex toy, we are in partnership with, get ready, House of SXN. This is the exclusive designer of luxurious leather erotic wear and accessories, infusing classical form with provocative design. All pieces are unparalleled in eroticism and function. And today we're going to talk about kink positive. We are going to also talk about how Eros shows up in our dating and the important conversation you have to have on the first two dates. So get ready, sexy souls, as I present to you Gallon to Project Black. Hello, sexy souls. This is your host, Erika, K as in kinky. And on today's episode, my guest is Galen. And as you all know, I like to talk about Project Black. Why black? Because black is the color of my soul. And technically, my hypothesis is that black is a kinky chakra. We all have developmental issues. Red is the root chakra for security and being grounded. Orange is about sexuality. Then we have yellow for the solar plexus, the heart for tuning in with your heart's desire, the throat chakras, sharing your self-expression, the third eye for your intuition, the crown chakra about death and letting go. And on today's episode, I'm very happy to introduce Galen, who travels all over the world to talk about BDSM and kink. And I'm very excited to introduce my guest, Galen. Hello, Galen. Hello, Erica, and uh, and all uh, the listeners. It's nice, uh, pleasure to be here with you today. And tell the audience more about your background for those that don't know your background. Hmm. Yeah, well, uh, I could start at birth and move forward uh, very quickly, uh, but. Uh, I've been, uh, and I say that kind of jokingly, but uh, yeah, my journey, my sexual journey began well before puberty, as many people uh, report that they do. So there's something different about what I call eros versus sexuality. And and eros, uh, which sexuality meaning procreative capability and and regenerative uh, capacities and such, you know, uh, is typically where people think puberty is the start of sexuality. But for many people, and this is what I kind of look, kink-oriented people, I think often fall into this category, fall into uh, an erotic mythos 
that's driving their sexuality that's kind of beyond their physical capability even i.e so before puberty uh, many people report in my uh, sex research uh, that they uh, about 40 percent before by the age of 10 were already engaging in actively in fantasy and masturbation uh, which is probably startling to a lot of people to hear that number but uh, so that points to, yeah, so I'm a, a, a kink-oriented sex researcher, therapist, uh, author, uh, lecturer, educator. You know, I speak at universities or conferences or uh, provide, uh, I have classes and coursework on various platforms that offer CE uh, credits to therapists uh, who are looking to understand the psychological dynamics of kinks and how to work with kink-oriented clients. So that's uh, what I've been doing for the last 20, for 20 years. Uh, I'm also out 24-7 as a lifestyle dom, a dominant erotic sadist, uh, to be specific, uh, het-oriented. So, uh, yeah, I've made, managed to make both my lifestyle and my profession uh, built around my uh, uh, own truth orientation uh, towards kink. What is a dominant erotic sadist? Well, that means in a, you know in in DS, you know, it's a consciously polarized uh, relationship between uh, a dominant and a submissive. You know, so uh, the dominant is the one who's in control, sets the lead. Again, this is a negotiated polarization, consensual polarization that can be in just a an erotic scene, an arranged, pre-negotiated sexual immersion in a scene uh, or play uh, as it's sometimes called in public or private uh, and it also can be a context for a, a an ongoing relationship that people immerse themselves uh, consciously by choice in that dynamic of uh, one being uh, in the aspiring to the what I'll call the archetype of the king or queen you know the one that leads that's the vision uh, keeps order uh, uh, all those kinds of things, and the submissive aspires to service, devotion, surrender uh, in that same context, mythically speaking, if they so are, are so oriented. You know, many people are doing that. It's not even conscious, but they're instinctively bringing those uh, types of energy. So the erotic sadist part then is, you know, uh, there's the noble and the pro sacred and the profane. So I just described the sacred on the DS side, you know, can have a very noble mythic quality to it, uh, chivalrous almost in its elegance uh, of interaction that can be available. And then the erotic uh, uh, sadist side is, is what is the profane side of it. It's like yin and yang, you know, the kink, uh, the yin yang of kink, DS and BDSM, you know, so the BDSM side is, is where the erotic sadist can emerge. Uh, in an archetypal sense of, you know, uh, both hot-blooded and cold-blooded uh, levels of intensity, fierceness, cruelty, whatever is taboo and appropriate, uh, whatever is straight-up uh, muscular o power over uh, another primal, you know, instinctual kind of energies, you know, uh, degrading, humiliating energies. Uh, those can all have a very compelling erotic charge. That's why I call it a, being an erotic sadist versus just a straight up sadist. You know, the point is, for me is is eros. You know, to uh, myself and my partner to 
get intoxicated in this erotic uh, intensity that's being generated. It's fast, It's a fascinating part of the research, and what I also try to understand is, uh, and nobody really knows, why is there an erotic charge associated with sadism and masochism, you know, things that hurt, that are cruel, that are uh, painful. Uh, and I have some theories around that that, uh, you know, I won't step right into here, but, you know, that's uh, what kind of a, how for my view of a dominant erotic sadist, you know, it likes to find a counterpart that's the opposite, you know, holds the opposite desires, uh, with arrows kind of the hinge of, of both of them. That's a lot of information and um, so well articulated. So one of the things that a lot of people from my audience ask is, how can I get him or her to do that? So an example mm -hmm. is, um, one, one case example is a guy who really wants to be a sub by his wife or his girlfriend, except um, she just, it's her personality. She doesn't want to do it. And I hear this many times. I'm sure you hear this all the time. Mm -hmm. How can I get him to just become that person in the bedroom? Whether yes. I want them to be, I want them to be more aggressive. Why do we have those wants? Well, the want is because that's inherent. That's natural to the person who has the desire. You know, these are not parts of us that are created by trauma and developmental uh, problems when we were growing up. Mm -hmm. For many people, these are innate, inherent, as I view it, uh, aspects. For someone who's on authentically a what I call a fetish sexual or a kink-oriented person, you know, this isn't, uh, doesn't have a cause from the environment. It's a, it's a born this way kind of thing. Just like a homosexual is born that way. You know, it, it used to be in the 50s, psychologists and, and such would, oh, these poor souls, something's happened to them. We've got to try and fix them. You know, they're just uh, victims of this, uh, whatever happened to them, you know, and now they're acting out. Uh, that's a real uh, wrong point of view then for homosexuals it's the wrong for if someone's thinking about kink oriented people as well to think that this is generated from some sort of trauma their desire for kink it is not uh, and in my survey of uh, over 4,000 people you know probably 70 percent uh, you know identifies yes I was born this way I, well whatever and there was a lot of shit that happens to people in their developmental time uh, and most of those things lead to shame and fear and confusion, not forming. Mm. It mostly uh, obscures the innate uh, inherent mm. desire, what happens in our uh, development. But uh, so in regards to this scene, you said, oh, I'm a submissive and I want my partner to dominate me. And oh, shit, they're not into it. Well, think about that. Why didn't you ask and find that out before you began your relationship? You know, this is why people get in erotic mismatches because they don't have this conversation when they're dating, you know, to uh, say, so, hey, I'm, I'd li I like sexually, I like to be submissive to my woman. And, you know, I like to have her uh, tie me up and do cock and ball torture. Or, and if they're going, holy shit, no fucking way, I'm not in, oh. Great, I'm glad you. I found out now rather than, wow, I'm three years in the relationship and I'm finally getting around to saying, hey, I'd kind of like to go this way and I wound up with someone who's totally not that way at all. Mm -hmm. So 
there is some possibility with a real open partner that you can have a negotiated discussion with them and just really put it out there and uh, see if there's a way that they can understand how important this is to you and that based on how much you love each other and want to be in that relationship, you know, something has, something has to give there. You don't have to just give up your sexuality if someone says, I'm not into that. That doesn't mean that you're not into it anymore. That just means that, okay, they're not into it and you are. So how do we work that out? You know, that should be the conversation. People yield their sexual birthright too often in relationships when they get up in these erotic mismatches and they don't uh, claim they're, they're right, you know. So that means that they could just say, okay, I hear you're not into it. You really are opposed to me doing it out of my love for you. I'm, I'm owning what's true for me, but I will try to put it aside, you know, as impossible as I believe that really is. Someone could be altruistic enough to, to be able to make that love and devotion. I mean, that could be how they, you know, that's their submission. They're basically their, their partner saying, yeah, the way I'm going to dominate you is I'm denying you. You don't get to do it. And, and I just, we do whatever I want when I want, mm -hmm. you know, so uh, that's, uh, but yeah, it, it's really important for people when they're, if they're single, start bringing that into the conversation before you move down a path with someone. Make it on the, I, I make it on the first contact, you know, it's right out really? front. Why waste my time? Oh, this is nice. This is nice. This is nice. A couple days later, let's meet again. And finally get around to like dropping the bomb, so to speak, you know, uh, and I'm a dominant erotic sadist. How about you? Are you into being a submissive erotic masochist? You know, uh, that's really because that's what I that's I'm not going to partner with someone who isn't. It's uh, it would be it's just like if I, I was a gay man and I'm out looking uh, at uh, women who, you know, uh, or men who are totally straight and they're never going to, you know, just be more than friends. You know, uh, it's foolish. It's wasting time. It's not being direct. It's not being transparent. It's not being sexually honest. And this is the biggest problem, I think, in our culture is sexual dishonesty is like a plague. It's an epidemic. You know, people do not let themselves be transparent about really what their sexuality looks like and what they desire. And when they're meeting someone what letting them know, yeah, here's what my sexuality is about. Uh, that should be as normal as uh, talking mm. about where you went to college or how many kids you want and what church do you go to and has seen any good movies lately. Uh, your sexuality should be just as commonly discussed and brought in and have as much curiosity uh, about that and an importance about that as anything else that you might want to know about another person. So I'm hearing that it's really important to ask the, the kinky questions in the beginning of the first, first two dates. Um, right. Well, because first of all, like myself, I recommend if I'm recommending to people, uh, date online, put up a profile, detail exactly who you are in as many ways that you can think of. So that you're getting contacted by people who you you were transparent. They know, oh, you're this way or that, or they avoided you because you're this way or that. Good. Mm -hmm. You know, you're weeding out people who aren't just going to really match up with you. And especially if you're into some sort of alternative sexuality, uh, there's no point in going out to a straight bar or club or the grocery store or 
the gym and hope you're going to run into someone who among all the wonderful human qualities, other human qualities uh, you want and they might possess, uh, might is lacking in, in this key fundamental uh, element that's going to be part of your relationship. Because if you don't bring it in that way, then it goes in shadow and it's leaking out in, in unhealthy, risky, uh, dishonest uh, ways out of integrity, breaking mm -hmm. agreements. Uh, you know, that's what happens when people don't talk about their sexuality. Honestly, by default, then it goes dishonest. It doesn't go away. It just goes into dishonesty, mm -hmm. into hiding, into sneaking, uh, mm -hmm. into, you know, people lead secret sex lives. You know, that's the yeah. big headline. Something that comes to mind is I was talking to another pro-dom and they say for, for example, for me, I'm a Latina. I was brought up in this Catholic church and and yet there's so much um so much shame in the in the church system right mm -hmm. there's in i believe like in the recent news there was these priests that you know abuse little children and just the type of news that comes out when they're holding so much of their sexual shame um but again i feel like when people play into those into those roles of hey i want to play out a scene from this this church scene, you know, like that's, that's a scary th thing to, to ask for some people it is. Um, but how much do you think that we're, we're dominated by religion? Well, uh, by the beliefs, uh, that haven't been embedded in us by not just the religion, but by, uh, nuns, priests, ministers, pastors, uh, mother, father, uh, all of those authority figures, for most of us who've grown up in this modern era, we've been traumatized and terrorized around our sexual uh, being, you know, our authentic sexuality, our natural uh, sexual curiosity, desire, instincts as children, you know, was mostly like snuffed out, was mostly shamed, good boy, you know, don't you ever touch yourself there, or, you know, good boys, don't do that, good girl, et cetera, all of those, uh, you know, the flesh is evil, uh, you know, animals do that, it's just on and on, or, or you'll be ruined, or no one will want you, uh, going to hell, uh, that's disgusting, you know, we are uh, so fraught with that kind of atmosphere, negative atmosphere around our natural expression of our curiosity. And especially in these times now of, you know, where it's so volatile, sexuality is very volatile right now uh, on all sides of the coin, you know, in terms of uh, the uh, institutional level or the academic level, the way, you know, the the social uh, environment uh, in certain sectors, you know, it's really confusing for people about how to operate their sexuality and, and, and not get called out or judged or, or, or to not see that they're operating in shadow and are transgressing and uh, being uh, inappropriate and if not in an outright violation, you know, so I think, uh, you know, we're in a very turbulent era of an emerging sexuality that's uh, just so new and so unaccustomed. We're so unaccustomed to how to deal with our sexuality. At the same time, there's this incredible explosion of sexuality emerging 
across the globe in the world and, and both sacred and profane sides mm. of the spectrum, you know, from sacred sexuality to kink. Uh, you know, everybody's uh, light bulb has kind of gone off and they're like, oh, curious, interested, you know, and with the internet, people have been able to kind of privately, secretly explore and open to the, this in a way from a source that there was no other source that, you know, they could have gotten any kind of information from uh, or education or uh, seeing that, oh, there's others uh, like me. That's one of the common things on the response to my survey is, oh, it was such a relief to know I'm not the only one, you know, who had some sort of kink desire. And so this is a, you know, really allowed sexuality to emerge in a way that's never been in the history of civilization, I would believe, uh, this much sexuality happening on, on, on the surface, you know, above the surface. Uh, but it's also very adolescent and immature still. It's not very, we don't have the tools and the resources, and this meaning even the academic and clinical helping professions, you know, of psychologists and counselors mm-hmm. and such are pretty clueless. First, about their own sexuality, they've never been expected to look at and reveal and know their own sexuality before they try to hold space and and help and support someone else's uh, sexuality. Because then that leads to them being judgmental and and having all kinds of moral judgments that have nothing to do with helping the person come to terms with their own sexual authenticity. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Sexual authenticity is, is a big one. And I remember talking to someone in my audience and I shared with them one of my recent episodes, they were actually stunned and surprised that it can actually be a spiritual experience. They, in their mind from, you know, whether film or erotica, they always thought it was uh, perverse, twisted and sick. And it comes from, I don't know what, what year 1960s when it was like diagnosed as a disease or a mental health issue. And now it's actually, people actually go to providers because it is a safe way of therapy or it, it allows people to, to share their, their weakest, you know, their fears and desires. I mean, in my personal experience, um, I, I felt free. It was, I'm going to be sharing this in an episode, future episodes. I'm going to choose my words. There was one moment where I finally went to a dom and I've went to, to several ones, but it was in this moment where I actually had really good sleep and I'm going really fast in the story, which I will again share in my last episode. It's interesting to know that when you're with someone who can actually respect your boundaries, can make you feel safe mm-hmm. in your little girl and in your teenager and in your adult self, mm-hmm. that you can be whoever the fuck that you want. <laughs> And not only who you want, but who is already resident in you. I mean, this is a persona inside of you that's having room made for it to step out. Yes. And um, I'm curious to know, like, what are the typical type of archetypes that show up in BDSM? Um, You talk about king and queen, and there's also the Athena. What are the the top archetypes that you notice in BDSM? 
Well, uh, there's a pantheon of them, you know, so, I mean, it, it, there's too many to name uh, in, in truth. I mean, there's as many as there are possible personas, probably, you know, from furries to, you know, uh, Egyptian goddesses or, or whatever. Who, you know, it's very, per so it's personal to start with. Everyone's going to have their own, pers that's why I call it a personal erotic myth, are, are going to contain their own specific, archetypal uh, energies and, and maybe the fundamental ones though are uh predator prey alpha beta and uh, you know or dominant and submissive you know king and queen uh, uh or king you know the counterparts of king and queen or servant devotee you know uh these are uh, most of the common themes in, in, in mythology and cosmology stories of any era of any civilization are going to contain all of the same kind of characters, archetypal characters like this. And we, that's a collective expression of these archetypes uh, in our mythologies and, and uh, cosmologies and theater and art and uh, on and on and on in those uh, expressive ways, but they also have a personal dimension, you know, where our personal uh, uh, inner king or queen or, or predator or prey, uh, you know, has its own particular personality, but it's around that major arcana uh, in those ways uh, and a contemporized uh, form. And it's, it's hearkening back to, and there's both civilized or, or say more refined and primitive versions uh, of those in, a, in the mm. king, uh, BDSM sense uh, that can be, and they're all kind of, a, and like you talked about, oh, daddy, daughter, uh, you know, uh, uh, mommy, son, all of these different variations uh, mm. can kind of almost morph and, and be, it's like a dream state, you know, where they're kind of morphing in and out, even in one scene, you know, where you're going from child to adult and back to child and, uh, as you know your dom you know might be shifting from daddy to you know master you know uh in in one scene it's all kind of blends uh uh like a psychedelic uh journey uh, mm. uh in a way but the thing you said that was very important uh there is about the trust side of it all of that can happen because of an initial effort and an ability to build trust with your partner before you begin into those intense territories because uh, they are uh, very, uh, you know, you have to be psychologically clear about what's going on and, and the trust you have that you are, you know. So at the core of it is an ultimate sense of safety and, and trust, you know, when, and that can travel through hell and back and, and you're good, you know, because, you didn't, no matter how, so for instance, for myself, I can get really intense in a scene and bring, you know, the motherfucker, the asshole, the son of a bitch, just, you know, that full on intensity, you know, just physical uh, dominance and all, uh, which can look like, well, this guy's going to beat the shit out of me and, and, and harm me uh, if that was in the outer chamber, in the, in the everyday world, in a non-negotiated, uh, non-consensual way but in a scene like that because that trust is so there and because uh you know each side really has to pledge to protect the other you know and, and support the other because you know it's it's uh, pushing an edge for a dominant often to step into that territory 
uh, over there into that intensity and that fierceness because, oh, God, I don't want to violate someone and I don't, you know, I don't want to harm some, you know, all you have to like almost push against as the dominant that part that's, you know, the nice guy, you know, the gentleman, the caring, protective uh, guy, you know, so, uh, but your partner is going to be disappointed if you don't bring it, you know. If mm. if they're a, a well matched and you've if you found a match who does really seek that, and that's what can be so profound for me uh, personally, has been this this uh, sense of uh, awe and uh, admiration, adoration of my submissive for witnessing and welcoming me in my darkest edge. I mean, it almost brings a, an an incredible tenderness out uh to be so welcomed in my full expression that way that wow she can hold me she can witness she can welcome me she can still love me uh and i can bring this uh, intensity that's like uh that's the, the deepest that intimacy i have ever experienced mm -hmm. and that's that's something that comes up today is the power of the submissive. How much power does a submissive have? Because I feel like they have like the majority of the power in a scene. Well, uh, in some ways uh, you can look at it that way. Uh, and I think that is going on in other ways. You know, it is, uh, you know, both sides have the power. I mean, you know, and ultimately neither side's giving up. Both should be in an empowered place, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, both the dominant and submissive should be coming from a place of empowerment when they're stepping into uh, their engagement, you know, because uh, both sides can have boundaries, both sides can have safe words, literally, and both sides can, you know, end or stop or, you know, shift or say, mm, you know, that's not working or uh, whatever. So it is uh, a lot much more complex than just the submissive has the final say or the final power. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, at any moment, yeah, she can agree or not to anything, you know, mm -hmm. she has that power. Where my, where my curiosity is, how can someone dominate them psychologically besides the humiliation and degradation? And we talked about this before. Is there a way oh. to dominate them in a way that like truly gets them at their core wound? Well, uh, I, the purpose of dominating isn't to get them at their core wound, you know, unless that's a therapeutic model somebody is working on and, and trying to work with or something. But, you know, that uh, the intention of the dominant, as I look at it, is to draw out what's already true, you know, unshackle it from all the the parts of them that are trying to maintain some level of dignity or power or control or authority, uh, you know, that that's not really what they want. If they've come to me and my intention is to surrender, to be submissive, mm -hmm. you know, I, this is more true than not for me. I know that's there. And I know that there's a lot of resistance, you know, parts, you know, this is about uh, uh, by, uh, you know, having agreements and protocols, you break the agreement, okay, then there's going to be consequences, you know, so it's a very, uh, and then there's the mind fuck. I mean, there's there's ways that you can, uh, again, there's the ex outer chamber level of this, you know, 
of working on it. And then there's the inner chamber of the erotic BDSM side, which is a, a totally different thing. And, and everybody's different, you know, and everybody has different cues and different uh, triggers uh, as well. So you want to avoid the triggers uh, and hit the cues, you know, uh, when uh, you find and, and you try to get this through negotiation and, and inquiry, uh, but sometimes there's a certain tone of voice that someone will just drop. You know, there's a physicality to the to the surrender, you know, mm -hmm. and this is, you know, avoid, you know, where you instinctively lower your eyes, you know, even if you're trying to look, you know, your head, <laughs> something's, you know, mm -hmm. keeping mm -hmm. you down mm -hmm. or you're keeping yourself lower uh, or, you know, you're opening uh, up and mm -hmm. being vulnerable, you know, uh, this is uh what's yearned for and if someone's not res uh, so either someone isn't submissive or there's something resisting their surrender and that so the dom's place is to through being present listening observing you know if you're holding that kind of space you'll see they'll be revealing uh, in some way you know right where things are what what is wanting to be said you know how and sometimes just, you know, there's resistance at the start, but if, okay, so for instance, if they didn't have a boundary around being grabbed by the hair, say, or around the throat, you know, uh, mm -hmm. if someone's in a little bit of resistance, you know, you might just yank them into attention, say. And, you know, their bodies responding to the physical dominance. Mm -hmm. A lot of people, that's all it takes right there. Other people have, Again, this is where you have to watch out for triggers because some people, uh, and why you negotiate and find these things out, out because maybe uh, that person, when they were six, their father or mother used to grab them by the hair and, and you know, tell them they were fucked up or stupid or worthless or something. And uh, that might still be a trigger for that person, uh, which is not going to put them into a good place in the mm -hmm. scene. Uh, so, uh, this is why you get really specific when you negotiate. Can I, what happened? Are you open to having me pull your hair? Hi, is there any way you don't want your hair pulled? Uh, how about slapping you in the face? Uh, you know, is, or choking or anything that has a, uh, or, or certain, or certainly around languaging. There's a whole protocol I have to check somebody out about where they are at in terms of intensity uh, of the scene, because uh, this is a the verbal side is where a lot of uh, wounded territory can still be lurking in someone. Mm -hmm. And, and they're not ready to bring that into the scene yet mm -hmm. uh, around. And so like the keys, if you're getting into verbal humiliation type play, which is what I think of as an emotional edge play, uh, you know, I check for, or I ask, do you have any concerns or issues or bound? I want, do you have any boundaries or do you need a boundary around any languaging around uh, femininity, intelligence, body image, race, religion, uh, or other, uh, and, and see what they say. They say, oh, you know, you can call it. No, I don't have any boundaries. A lot of people will say that, I, you know. I go, oh, really? Mm. So if I called you a stupid, fucking, worthless piece of shit, 
you're all you're all good with that and no problem. And and maybe they sometimes they'll go, oh yeah, I love to be verbally humiliated like that. Yeah. And other people, well, you can call me stupid, but if you call me fat, I'll kill you. You know. So this is uh, how differentiated these different archetypal personas uh, are and how they're influenced or impacted by these developmental issues of shames or, or fears or traumas that we've experienced that need to be very carefully vetted and, and scrutinized if you're stepping into any of these uh, kind of emotional edge plays. Mm. Yeah, it's really important to be careful with the languaging. And when you were saying that um, some people will say, I don't have any boundaries. I really believe it's BS because everyone has a boundary. Test that one hard. <laughs> Somebody says that, you know. But I, I really like that. That is a really powerful tool that you just shared um, to ask about, like, the religion, the femininity. Um, so what questions would you would ask around the, the femininity, the intellect, intellectual? Um, those are some really powerful things that you were just saying. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, clearly a lot of uh, uh, my experience is a lot of people who have uh, want, need a boundary uh, around uh, language, around intelligence or because, yeah, they were ridiculed as not being very smart growing up uh, and bullied or humiliated around that. And, and it's, it's not going to generate uh, an erotic charge is kind of the measure there you know some people so and this is why it's so uh such a mystery about how the psychological dynamics of kink operate in an erotic way uh because i've i've met people who just i can get them to beg for me to degrade them in these and in, you know intensely humiliating degrading language you know uh because and they'll be you're dripping like uh, crazy, you know, coming their brains out uh, along with some other things. But I mean, that level of, uh, I look at it as kind of a, a, an annihilation. It's a totally annihilation of the ego, you know, any kind of vanity, dignity. Uh, and it's, it's a relief in the sense I can understand of, of holding up this mask, you know, of looking cool, looking good, got my shit together. I'm strong. I'm powerful you know, where you can just collapse all of that structure that you're, of your mask and just uh, go into this animal, you know, it's kind of like a subhuman state, and which means an animal state. So it is going back down to the primal uh, states of these states where, you know, when an animal is captured, it, it, it just kind of, it's in surrender, you know, it, it, and, and there's some sort of ecstasy uh, in that as well. So there's a lot to know and learn about how these things work, but uh, I think the fact of them is quite evident. Mm -hmm. And you, you share absolutely amazing. And I want to hear what, what got you into this community and this lifestyle? Like, I mean, some people choose doctor because they like to help people. Some people choose mm -hmm. ballerina because they like to dance. This is not something that we were given as choices as children, like especially through toys. Like, what was it? What was that moment for you? Oh, there's an idea. Kink toys for kids. <laughs> Just like the fire trucks and all this. But now, yeah, we got the little dungeon toys and 
that's probably blasphemous to say that, but what the hell? Um, well, I, uh, as I said, I was sexually aware from the age of five on, you know, very sexually aware, way beyond my five-year-old level. Uh, you know, it was like a total other creature. Well, that's what I sometimes call it. The sex creature, uh, you know, was alive in me and operating, you know, uh, my little five-year-old is just kind of getting <laughs> taken along for the ride up until, uh, you know, uh, I got a little older maybe, but by the time I was 13 or so was when I saw my first SM mags. And I remember there was a picture, uh, the cover had a, uh, a young, uh, woman, uh, who was, uh, in some sort of bondage, had a ball gag and it only had two mouse traps on her nipples, which I thought, God, that's so fucking degrading. I couldn't believe it. I was 13, but I was going, I remember my thought was besides being totally ready to jack off right on the spot right there was, wow, where could I find a girlfriend like this? Mm -hmm. You know, uh, that, so that's was my quest began there to find a, a kinky partner. I didn't obviously know at that time there was a, and there probably wasn't to speak of a kink community, uh, or uh, other people uh, in, in more accessible ways. But uh, I still, even from there, because I was raised a Catholic, I was a Boy Scout, I was an altar boy, you know, I was the kid wearing, the guy wearing the white hat, I aspired to be the good guy. And no one would have, I didn't know what to do with my bad boy, you know, my dark creature. Uh, so I hit it. Uh, and desperately hit it. I was terrified of anyone discovering, and I, me, and, and you know, so I, because I would buy porn mags or, or this throughout that stretch of time, and, uh, but never could share that. I hoped I'd kind of would just kind of run across someone, but this was all before the internet and personal, so uh, I just kind of kept it in my fantasy, and, and like, I was, did talked about at the beginning, negotiate beforehand. I didn't do that. I didn't have an ability to speak honestly. And it is very, it's a, that's why it's such a challenge in our culture to speak honestly still. Uh, but it's a must that we're getting to. But mm -hmm. uh, this led me down. And so I was married for 17 years. I had two sons. Uh, I hung in the marriage. It wasn't a very good marriage for me. But I hung because I had two sons and I wanted to be a good father. Uh, I loved my sons and, and recognized how important the idea of father is in a young boy's life because I grew up without a father or I didn't know my birth father. Uh, and, uh, but finally after 17 years, this was okay. Uh, I'm going to, I'm leaving the marriage, but I'm also going to get real about my sexuality. And it wound up, uh, I got before the, during the divorce process, I got discovered with ads on alt.com and a site called bondage.com and my ex downloaded them and turned them into evidence. And suddenly I was outed. I was just planning this kind of private, personal, I find some partner and still be the same person I was kind of in the outer world. And uh, suddenly I was outed in this most vicious way, uh, like I was a pathological uh, child molester uh, level kind of thing. And the courts, uh, all, all the people in my community, my, my wife, ex-wife outed me to everybody, my sons, her family, my family, the employees of our business, all my buddies and professionals contacts. And so it was this horrible, uh, and I hadn't yet developed or even stepped into another community yet. 
So I was on my own in this really suddenly under attack by everyone in this town I had lived in for 27 years. So I couldn't walk down the street without running into people who were giving me the evil eye. And it was just a, a, a very traumatic experience. And, I, and the courts, I, ruined, I lost my sons, I lost my property, I lost my business, I lost my reputation. Uh, and uh, it was a, fortunately I'm very stubborn and I have a lot of pride in, and a lot of people I think would have been driven to suicide under the circumstances I was in because I lost my money I lost my business I had not I mean every suddenly I took one step towards being sexually authentic and boom this everything blew up and I lost everything and it was just like so devastating emotionally and physically and spiritually from there I learned uh, uh, I'm out you know the blessing was I'm now out at this time it was horrible and terrible but on the other hand i was like wow i'm i don't have i'm not hiding anybody i would have hidden from knows or at least they don't know the actual truth but i'm out i don't have to hide and so that put me in the position of uh, recognizing how uh, what a struggle it is for people to get real and get honest and put me on this path to supporting others to take that journey into their sexual authenticity and honesty mm. and uh celebration of uh, their sexual birthright, you know. Mm, thank you for sharing such a powerful story. Uh, I feel like sexual authenticity is the theme of this episode where you just like really guide everyone to like hear how is it to just uh, turn down the mask, like, you know, put your sword down and just like share your authenticity. A lot of these pains and wounds and depression, anxieties, because people are not sharing what they want and they're just settling for comfort and I we're we're definitely advancing from back in the times when we couldn't even have gay rights or you know have congress people that are gay now now in 2018 right now like we just had the yeah a lot of changes colder and in yeah absolutely and now anything's possible and I feel like a lot of people use sexuality as as a negative and instead of like seeing it as a positive and we definitely need more sexual authenticity. And um, that being said, I would love to see, is there anything that you want to share with, your, with the audience of any, how people can work with you, coach with you? Because I know that you travel all over the world and this is just such a, such a blessing that you're here with us. Hmm. Well, like, uh, yeah. you're doing good work there and providing an important platform for uh, an audience to start to uh, there's not a place to get the resource this kind of information or this kind of point of view about your sexuality or kink oriented sexuality so uh, it's uh, you're providing an important service to bring this uh, information out but uh, yeah so I work with uh, individuals men women and couples uh, around uh, claiming their sexual birthright, being sexually authentic, being sexually honest, uh, untangling shame, fear, and trauma from what's holding, you know, hiding, keeping them hidden or afraid to step uh, forward. You know, there's all kinds of tools and techniques that people can use uh, to learn how to integrate their authentic sexuality into their everyday life and be in integrity with their agreements and responsibilities. Uh, and uh, 
such with their partners or, or uh, on their own, however they're operating. But uh, my website is galenfoos.com, G-A-L-E-N-F-O-U-S.com. Um, information about my book, Decoding Your Kink is There. You can take the Discover Your Personal Erotic Myths survey, which is a huge mm-hmm. kink-oriented research project and also a tool for individuals to drill down and and access more of what's going on in their sexual unconscious if they're not already aware. And uh, also if someone, uh, uh, I come go around, uh, as you said, and lecture places if someone's interested in uh, hosting a lecture in some city in the U.S., uh, they can come and talk to me about the logistics. Mm. It's not too hard to put something together. And uh, yeah, and so I, you know, I have webinars and workshops and things. So all that's uh, accessible through my website. I'll just throw in a plug also. I'm also the designer inventor of the Tetris Shibari suspension rig, uh, BDSM dungeon, and sex swing oh. uh, since 2000. I've been operating that. That's at Tetris, T-E-T-R-U-S-S dot com. That is amazing. I have to check that out. So please go check out Galen. He just shared so much wisdom with all of us. And if you want to hear more, please go check out my website, ericabriones.com. Again, thank you so much, Galen, for this amazing um, interview. You've definitely hit all the, the spots when it comes to sexual authenticity. So thank mm-hmm. you. Thanks so much. My pleasure.